0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, James 1, and we'll continue our series, the title of which is on the screen behind me. Real Faith, because the book of James, is about a number of tests as to whether or not what we say we believe in the word faith in the New Testament is the word for belief. So is our belief real? Is it authentic? Is it genuine? And that's the theme of the book that we're considering over the next several months together. I was recently asked, what is the most difficult part of your job as a pastor? And the most difficult part, I said, is to see people who are exposed to the Word but are not changed by the Word. And I was then asked, well, what's the most rewarding part of your work as a pastor? And I said, it's when you see people eagerly receiving God's truth and putting it into practice in their lives. Now, why would it happen at all, let alone often, that people would put themselves in position to hear the Bible, but fail to apply it? Well, I think it's because too many of us agree with Woody Allen, who said 80% of success is just showing up. And by our actions, more accurately our inactions, it appears that for some of us, We think we've been successful if we just show up. We know that I've got a job to do each Sunday morning and you've got a job to do. And so in order to have the thing, the thing being church on Sunday morning, then let's just get it out of the way. And by the way, the sooner the better. My job is to talk. Your job is to listen. And hopefully I finish my job before you finish yours. And so here we are, ready to go through the motions for another Sunday. At the end of many weeks, I feel like that we could all be in a movie scene. The movie title is The Sermonator. And I do what I'm supposed to do, and you do what you're supposed to do, and then when we're done, there's the understanding, we'll be back. And we'll do it all over again. And so every Sunday, we roll out of the rack, throw some water on our face, deal with the interminable construction throughout downriver, find our seat, probably the same one every week, hear the message, go home, and we're the same husband we were before we came. The same wife we were before we came. Still the same person we were before we showed up because a large measure of our success, we think, is just showing up. Now, we know that's not true. But we often, friends, if we're honest, behave like it is. It's such a real and present danger that God Almighty warns against it. He says in verse 19 of James chapter 1, Each one of you should be quick to hear, that is, eager to hear, ready to hear. And eager to hear what? Well, verse 18, right before that then, says it's the word of truth that has given us life. And so we should be eager to hear the word of God, but we're very often not so because, yes, we're creatures of habit. And we can very easily find ourselves just going through the motions. But we looked last week at another more fundamental reason that we are not changed by what we hear. And it's because verse 21 of James 1 says we are to, notice the phrase, humbly accept the word. And lack of humility, or to put it another way, the presence of pride will keep us from looking intently into the Word to see ourselves and our problems and then look to change. Pride will keep me from doing that. It will keep you from doing that. Humility allows me to look in the mirror, but pride can't accept what I really am. And so God warns, it is very possible to be a hearer merely And so verse 22 says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. And then verses 23 through 25 give us an absurd illustration, what should be absurd, what is all too common as applied to our hearing of the word. It's like a man who looks in the mirror and he sees things that are out of place, knows that change needs to take place, but... He immediately goes his own way and forgets what he has heard and he remains unchanged. And that man has a look, verse 24 says. Verse 23 says he looks at his face in the mirror and after looking, and the word there is different, as I showed you last week, than the one in verse 25, which says there's a different man who looks intently. So the first man just takes a glance, enough to know, you know what, that's ugly, I don't want to see that. Let's move on. And his pride keeps him from looking intently at what he's really like. But the man, verse 25, who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. And that's what we saw last week. And this message today is further application of last week. Now, why would I take an additional week and maybe weeks to apply that. Hear this, friends. Forgive the grammar, but it don't do me no good at all to preach God's Word week after week unless we come ready to hear and willing to change and see that which keeps us from doing it week after week. And what keeps us from doing it? Verse 21 says, there's the requisite humility that we need in order to accept, receive, welcome the word. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. The gospel frees me from having to center my thoughts upon myself as all of us have the tendency to do. I don't need to, as I mentioned last week, connect things to myself, both the good things I do and the bad things I do. So I don't need to, in the good things I do, highlight them and make sure everybody knows about them. But also in the bad things I do, in the sins that I commit, I can face them because Jesus has died for them and He has covered them. And so gospel humility is not thinking more of myself, It's not thinking less of myself as we saw last week. It's thinking of myself less. And what are some tests for us as to whether or not we're approaching this gospel humility that's necessary for us to accept the word and be changed by it? Well, one would be how we accept criticism. Can anybody tell you you're doing it wrong? that you need to improve. And not just in the way you're doing things, perhaps morally you need to change. Can somebody tell you that? Without you being defensive, gospel humility would say, thank God that these issues are being pointed out to me so that I can now change and become more like Jesus. So one test of whether or not we're approaching this gospel humility is whether or not we can accept criticism. Just think about how much you and I think about ourselves for a moment. Whenever you see yourself in a group, you see a picture of a group and you're in it. Where does your eye immediately go? I know where it goes because it's the same place mine does. I can't believe I'm that fat. I did not know my hair looked that bad. Your eye and my eye immediately go to us. And some of us are so centered on ourselves, we can't even look at us in the picture. In fact, I don't even want my picture taken because I don't like the way I look in pictures. Or, what do you talk about? I mean, when you're talking to other people, do you make it a point to take the center the focus off of you and onto them, you know that everybody's favorite thing to talk about is what? And those of you who say, you know, I just can't meet people, I just can't talk to people, nonsense, nonsense. Some of you have tried that with me. You know, I just can't talk to people. I say, you're talking to me. You just told me that. That's talking. And let me help you with this. If you will ask people about them, they will talk back to you. If you will take the focus off yourself and poor me and how nobody talks to me and how it's all about me, and you will begin to approximate gospel humility such that you will ask people about them. C.S. Lewis said this, if we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling they're a nobody. Such a person is self-obsessed. Rather, the thing we would remember is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Now, why don't we have this requisite humility that allows us to look squarely at what God says about us in His Word and be changed by it? It's because this humility comes only from a proper understanding of the gospel. And I am convinced that many of us, even though we've been in church most or all of our lives, many of us do not understand the gospel. Hear this. Only in the gospel of Jesus, only in the gospel given in the Bible, in true biblical Christianity, only in that good news do you get the verdict before the performance. The verdict is rendered before you've done anything. And it's only in the good news of the gospel that that happens. In every other ism, every other man-made religion, you get the verdict by being a good person. And even if that person's religion is atheism, and by the way, atheists have their own set of beliefs, have their own standard, namely themselves and their own reason. And even an atheist will get his self-esteem from a measure of what he does. We saw last week someone who was freed from all of that because he understood the good news of the gospel. Paul, who wrote much of your New Testament, said this in 1 Corinthians 4, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. And we saw last week that that word that's translated innocent is the word for justify. And so the fact that I see myself as being innocent does not justify me. I can't justify myself. The only one who can justify me ultimately is God. And in this passage, it's interesting that he has a courtroom setting. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. And I think he's using that as a a metaphor for what goes on in most of our lives. We find ourselves, as it were, in court every moment of every day. A book that I mentioned last week, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, explains it well. The problem with our self-view, whether it's high or low, is that every single day we are in the courtroom. Every single day we are on trial. That's the way that everyone's identity works. In the courtroom you have a prosecution and defense and everything we do is providing evidence either for the prosecution or for the defense. And some days we feel we're winning the trial, other days we feel we're losing it. But Paul says that he had found the secret. And the secret is this, that for him the trial is over. Thanks be to God. That I'm not on trial every day. The trial is over. He's out of the courtroom. It's gone. It's over. It's finished. Why? Because the ultimate verdict is in. How could that be? How could the ultimate verdict be? Well, Paul puts it simply. He knows that what other people think of him does not make him innocent, does not justify him. He knows that what he thinks about himself does not justify him. It's what it's the Lord that judges him. It's only his opinion that counts. And so author Tim Keller says it well. He says, do you realize that it's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that indeed you get the verdict before the performance? The atheist might say that, he can, that they can get their self-image from being a good person. They're a good person and they hope eventually they'll get a verdict that confirms that they're good. The performance leads to the verdict for the Buddhist performance leads to the verdict. If you're a Muslim, performance leads to the verdict. And then the false gospel that so many of us have acquired, it's still based on your performance. You know that your performance is not good enough. Hear me, friend. So you refuse to look intently at yourself because you don't like what you see. And you know it depends on you, and you've got to measure up you don't really change. But you try to change. Now hear this. You still try to change the way you're viewed by others by deflecting attention from your flaws. You want attention, but only the kind that's comfortable for you. So you seek to control how you're viewed by others. And all of this means that every day you're in the courtroom. If you haven't applied the gospel of Jesus, you're in the courtroom. Every day you're on trial, and that's the problem. But Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians 4 that in true Christianity, the verdict leads to the performance, not the performance leading to the verdict. In true Christianity, the moment we believe, God says, this is my beloved Son, in whom... I am well pleased. You say, wait a minute. He said that about Jesus. (laughs) Which shows we don't understand the gospel. Because in the gospel, I've been united with Jesus. And now what he says about Jesus, he says about me. Because Jesus' righteous life has been applied to me. And to you. Or take Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so in true biblical Christianity, the moment we believe, God counts Christ's perfect performance to us as if it were ours. And he adopts us into his family. And so in other words, God can say to us, just as he said to Christ, you're my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And why? The verdict is in. And now I perform. And now you're to perform it. And now you are to do based upon the verdict. Because He loves me and accepts me, I don't have to do things to build up my resume. I don't have to do things just to make me look good. I can do things just for the joy of doing them. I can help people to help people. Not so I can feel better about myself. Not so I can fill up the emptiness that we saw last week. Pride always has. With every other form of identity, every other badge or accolade we might award ourselves, it's always a case of the verdict coming from the performance, what we do. And so we might find security in labeling ourselves as a good person or a moral person. Whatever it is, it's always the same, performance, then verdict. But get this, the verdict never comes. The performance never gets the ultimate verdict. But in true biblical Christianity, in the gospel, that is to be good news, the verdict can give you the performance. Now how is that? And Paul's answer to that is, I'm out of the courtroom, I'm out of the trial. And why is that? Because Jesus was on trial. Jesus went into the courtroom. And the Bible says that he was silent before his accusers. But he went on trial for us. And then he went to the cross, and God the Father rendered his verdict in raising him from the dead that he accepted the sacrifice that was based on the perfect life of Jesus on our behalf. So now the verdict of God the Father has been rendered on God the Son. And when I come to him in the good news of the gospel, he sees me through the perfection of Jesus. Thanks be to God. hear this, friends. This has a very, very practical import for us then. That's not just a test for theology. You know, give me your definition of justification. We want to make sure you got that right. And you know, so many of us could intellectually do that. But it has very practical significance for us. You will cleanse no sin from your life that you have not first recognized as being pardoned through the cross. So many of us are trying to cleanse stuff from our lives without thinking about first the fact that Jesus has covered that sin that I struggle with. And you will cleanse no sin, no sin from your life that you have not first recognized as having been pardoned through the cross. Now, why is that? It's because holiness always starts in the heart. And the essence of true holiness is not new behavior, new activity, or new disciplines. The essence of holiness is new desires and new motivations that in turn lead to new behavior. And if you don't see your sin as completely pardoned, now hear this, then your affections and your desires and your motives will be wrong. You will aim to prove yourself. Your focus will be the consequences of your sin rather than hating sin itself and desiring God in its place. And that's why I say in the outline. That's inserted in your program. It's when I look to the cross that I can face my sin. When I look to the cross and I see that on the cross is a perfect, absolutely full past, present, and future payment for every sin I have or will commit. A payment that has been made by an absolutely perfect substitute, shown to be perfect, by His absolutely righteous life preceding that death on the cross. And three days later, God the Father renders His verdict on Jesus. And so when I look to the cross now, I can face my sin. Because I don't have to perform in order to be accepted by God. And if I truly care about what God thinks about me, hear this, more than I care about what anybody else thinks, as Paul said, I care very little. What you say or any human court says, I don't even care what I say. What I care about is that the Lord judges me. And if we truly care about that, and that verdict has been rendered... And I don't have to perform for God and I don't have to perform for other people either. And so I can have the requisite humility to accept what God says about me. That anger that you've been struggling with all your life, you can finally face it and say, I'm an angry person, and God says that's sin. And by God's grace, I'm going to deal with it according to His grace as given in Scripture. I can admit it because Jesus has paid for it. I can face it because it's been paid for on the cross. I don't have to be now in a contest with anybody else to get one-upmanship. My Lord Jesus... Please heal our families from the contest of who's right and who's done it longer and who's done it worse. Heal us in our relationships, Lord God. Break our hearts to see our sin as you define it because Jesus has paid for it. Friend, Stop playing the game. You don't have to play the game. Because the God you were singing about earlier really did cover all of your sin on the cross. Do you see what I mean when I say we come, we sing, we hear, and we leave, and we do the same junk over and over? When I look to the cross, I can face my sin. And when I look to the cross, it means the verdict has been given, court has been dismissed, and so I don't have to prove now anymore myself, as I say in the outline. I don't have to prove myself to God. Many people think that good people are those who go to heaven. So you want to go to heaven? You need to be good. So they think of heaven as kind of a fancy nightclub with a bouncer at the door. Only people who have the dress code get in. Anybody in jeans is turned away. So we kind of tidy ourselves up so we can get into heaven. Or you may, by what I've said earlier, yep, it's only by God's grace that we're accepted. But you still want to impress God so that here below, in the meantime, He'll bless you. And so I heard about one woman who said, I've tried living God's way, but he still hasn't given me a husband. So she wanted to impress God in order for God to then respond to this impression. How many of us have done that? We think that we need to prove ourselves to God. And in so doing, it's a denial of the gospel. And this instinct to self-atone runs deep in us. We want to make amends for our own sin on our own. We want to make amends for our own sin on our own. (laughs) All right, so I've been an angry mess my whole life. My family knows it. But I've got to atone for it myself, so I can't just come clean on it. I have to say, yeah, yeah, I get that, but what about you? Okay, here we go. Let's let's do the contest. Right? Right? Or it's not that bad, look at all the good stuff I do. And we're proving ourselves, proving ourselves to God and in turn, seeking to prove ourselves to others. But if I really look at the cross, I can face my sin. I don't have to prove myself to God because Christ has done all the proving for us and then secondly, I don't have to prove myself in turn to others. I don't have to prove myself to God. I don't have to prove myself to other people. We, if we're honest, we want people to be impressed by us. We want to fit in or win approval. We certainly don't want people finding out what we're like inside, and so we wear a mask to hide our real selves. And Wearing that mask itself can be a great strain for us. We're acting in a role all the time, but we dare not let people see us as we really are. One of the problems with trying to prove ourselves to people is that people become the standard. Their standards may be godly, they may be ungodly, but we adopt their behavior in order to fit in. Or, if other people are the standard, we're looking to see if we're better than they are. And so we find fault and we point fingers at them. Think about your most intense relationships. I often give illustrations from the home because that is where our most intense relationships are. And think about how often we do this very thing in our homes. And yet instead, we should be comparing ourselves to whom? To Jesus. And finding we fall a long way short, all of us, of God's standards. and That we desperately need His grace and the gospel every moment of every day. And so when I look at the cross, I can face my sin, and I don't have to prove myself to God, certainly. And I I don't have to prove myself to others either. And thirdly, I don't have to prove myself to myself. When we mess up, we feel the shame of our sin. We want to put it right. And so one author says we want to think of ourselves as a former user of porn rather than a porn addict. We want to say, I used to have a problem with anger rather than, I have a problem with anger. So when we mess up, our primary concern is that we can't think of ourselves as a former sinner. We can't feel good about ourselves until we put some distance between us and our last so-called big sin. And so for us Sin has become first and foremost, now hear this, sin against ourselves. If I sin, I've let myself down. And when I, What I feel when I sin is the offense against me and my self-esteem, not the offense against God. When I look to the cross, I can truly face my sin. Now hear this, friends. Trying to impress God or trying to impress others or trying to impress ourselves Here's the problem with that. It puts us at the center of our change project. It makes change all about my looking good. It's done for my glory. Now, what is the definition of sin? That's pretty much it, isn't it? Doing what I do for my glory. So here's the warped thing we do. We try to make ourselves look better, even in religious sorts of ways, coming to church, talking religiously, reading the Bible, doing it more than other people do, looking down on others, comparing ourselves to others, all the while doing it for our glory, which is the very definition of the sin that we're supposed to be taking care of. Sin is living for my glory instead of God's. Sin is living life my way for me instead of God's way, for God. Sometimes that means rejecting God as Lord, wanting to be our own Lord, but it can also involve, now hear this, rejecting God as Savior and wanting to be our own Savior. Pharisees do good works and they repent of bad works. But gospel repentance includes repenting of good works done for wrong reasons. And I'm afraid our churches are filled with people doing good works for wrong reasons. And that's why there's no lasting change. I come to church because it's a good work and I go through the motions, but my motivations are wrong. Theologian John Gerstner said this, the thing that really separates us from God is not so much our sin." but our damnable good works. Deep down in all of us, there's a tendency to want to prove ourselves, to base our worth on what we do and religious people are absolutely expert at it. I'm going to move to the last point. But friend, let me say to you, if you've been coming week after week, year after year, Same issues in your life. No change. Hearing the word of God, but not doing it. It is at root because there is not the requisite humility to accept the word that verse 21 speaks of in James 1. Having the humility to be able to see yourself as you truly are. No longer trying to prove yourself to God, to others, or even to yourself getting out of the courtroom because the verdict has been rendered and now performing now doing what we do on the basis of the fact that God has received me in Jesus and I can own up to every last sin I commit every mess up the way I look this is who God made this is how God has made me this is what I am I can look at myself in the mirror spiritually in the word of God physically, literally in the mirror and say, okay, that's what I look like. And God accepts me as I am. When I look to the cross, and only when I look to the cross, can I face my sin. Secondly, in your outline, when I look to Jesus, I become like Jesus. It's a passage in the Bible, I have it on the screen for you. It says this, We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But to this day, that same veil remains, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. And what's being said there, and we're going to go on and read what the rest of the passage said. What's being said there is a recounting of, you remember, Moses meeting God on on the mountain. And just being exposed to the glory of God in God's presence set Moses' face on fire, as it were. When he came down from the mountain, his face shone so brightly the people couldn't look on him. He had to put a veil on his face. But now notice what the passage says. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, Moses had turned to the Lord. Moses saw the Lord. But because those who saw Moses had not turned to the Lord, they couldn't see him. They couldn't look on him. But when anyone turns to the Lord, now the veil is taken away. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord. The next chapter of 2 Corinthians 2 says, God gives us the knowledge of the glory of God, notice, in the face of Christ. I can face my sin when I look to the cross. And when I look to the cross and the Savior of that cross, the Lord Jesus, I become like Jesus. When I turn to Him now, because I have been humbled by the cross and I can look squarely in His face now, I begin the process of being conformed to His image, becoming like Him. So notice the phrase that is highlighted. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, this happens. So I want to conclude by asking you, dear friend, have you turned to the Lord? You say, what? Of course. I'm a church member. You baptized me. I was baptized long before I met you. I've been in church my whole life. I won a WANA contest saying verses. I won sword drills. I could find the passage faster than anybody. And you're asking me if I've turned to the Lord? I ask you, dear friend, how different are you today than you were last year? Or the year before? Or the year before that? And I started out by saying, we often come together and we go through the motions and we remain unchanged. It is possible to do that for years. Have you turned to the Lord so that you can look in His wonderful face full on because you know your sins have been forgiven. And despite the fact that He is infinitely holy and we are completely sinful, I can look because I've been accepted by the Father because of the work of Jesus. And thereby, the Bible says, I'm increasingly changed. Let me give you an illustration, and then I'll be done. I took a class years ago by a gentleman who was an expert in revitalizing churches. That is, churches that were dying. He would go to these churches, and he would help them gain life get their priorities back again, remember the things that they used to do in order to bring that church back to life. And he had had success doing that at several churches. He talked about one of the churches where he was asked to do that and be an interim pastor. And the very first thing that he would do at all of these churches when he would seek to revitalize them was to do this, was to reteach them the gospel. And he says, the very first week I was there, I was going to preach the gospel and make sure that people had a full understanding of what the gospel is. And I had made arrangements with the organist who had been there for decades. And I said, when we get to the end, I want you to play a particular song. So when I pray, I want you to come to the organ and begin playing. And so he gave the gospel. And then at the end, he began to pray. And he was expecting to hear this music, but he didn't. And when he finished his prayer, he looked over, and there was no organist at the organ. So he was ticked. I know I saw her. She's at church today. Where is she? And then he heard the sound of someone weeping. And he looked down from the pulpit at, there at the front. It was that organist who had played Amazing Grace, just as I am for decades, coming to Jesus for the first time. My friend, if we have not changed year after year after year, we need to come to Jesus. And don't, in your pride right now, you're saying to yourself, are you kidding? (laughs) I've been a church member here for several years. People know that I've gone to church my whole life. And that's your pride. That's your pride saying, what would people think if I admitted that I've never come to Jesus? But if God's Spirit is working in your heart, you don't care what other people think. You care what God thinks. And you thank God that He thinks of you as He thinks of Jesus when you come to Him through Jesus. You can do that right now. In a room this size, I am convinced because God says in his word, there will be people who come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not? And he says, I never knew you. He invites you to be known by him now. So I give that sacred invitation to you in this solemn moment Come to Jesus. Look at the cross. Face your sin. Stop proving yourself to God and others and to yourself. And as you look full in the face of Jesus, you gradually, with ever-increasing glory, become like Jesus. Let's bow together. Father, I ask you to do what only you can do. Only you can grip the heart. Lord God, I can present your truth. And I've tried to do that. I ask you to take this feeble attempt. By your spirit, move on the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. And I pray that in this moment you would draw some to yourself who have perhaps never heard the gospel message. But they understand their need of the Savior for the first time. They desire to be freed from their performance and found accepted by God the Father through Jesus. And the freedom that goes with that, to own up to who they are and all of their struggles, I pray for those who have heard the message but have never heard the message because it's simply been by ears and not by their heart. But there are some who are being drawn to you in that way, been in church their whole lives. They know all the lingo. They know how to make themselves look good. They don't know God. Oh, Lord Jesus, we ask you to draw them to yourself. For those of us who have come to you through the Lord Jesus, Help us to see our own sin and to face it. Help me to do that. Help me to face it every day. Help me to face it at home. Help me to face it in the pulpit. Help me to face it in my counseling. Help me to face it in every endeavor in which you call me because my sin is ever present. But Lord, I can see it, I can face it because you have paid for it. Dear sister, coming I'm to the lord amen amen you've come to the lord but you want to rededicate to him amen. amen well thelma has come forward says that she wants to rededicate her life to jesus thanks be to god so we're going to pray for our sister lord we thank you for the effect of your word we thank you for giving us spiritual ears to hear thank you for doing that in my sister thelma And I thank you, Lord, for creating that desire within her to please you with her life. We thank you, Lord, that we come on the basis of the Lord Jesus and not on our goodness. Help her, Lord, to appropriate what she has heard and what she reads from your word. Help her to do it based upon the full knowledge that she's accepted as your daughter because of the Lord Jesus and thereby may she please you with all that she thinks and all that she says and all that she does. For your glory, not her own. For your honor, not her own. Not to impress you because we know we can't. Not to impress anybody else. But on the basis of the fact that you have already been impressed by the work of God the Son in whom you are well pleased. We'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.